Welcome to a special edition of Blog and May Blog, The Federal Vision, a discussion with James White from Alpha and Omega Ministries and Douglas Wilson. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you were aware of Douglas Wilson's newest pre-order, Productivity, a practical theology of work and wealth. If you're hoping to be more productive and wise with your time and abilities in 2020, order the book today at canimpress.com. So, Doug Wilson, it's been, what, 15 years, I think, since we last saw each other. Yes, seems like yesterday. Uh, (laughs) Not for me. (laughs) And uh, both of us look a little bit different than we did 15 years ago. Um, Lots of water under the bridge since then, but of uh, late, a lot of discussion, partly because you are brave enough to sit on couches that are on fire, which personally... (laughs) I'm still waiting for the inside story on that one because I, I would not be able to remember what I was supposed to be saying uh, as that was going on. So I was pretty impressed. Just, just so you know. Well, thanks. It was, it was fun. I'll, I'll put it this way. It, it was a real fire and it was really there when I was talking, but it was enhanced somewhat. Enhanced somewhat. Okay. I won't even go there. I don't want to know how you enhance fire on a couch anyways. But the point is that that was uh, the beginning. Uh, you all did your November thing. Then you've done it again this year. Right. And obviously, uh, you are addressing a lot of issues that are a great common concern for a lot of people who are watching with a tremendous amount of dismay, um, entire um, seminary faculties, um, denominations that I was naive enough at one point to think would not fall into the perspectives they're falling into because of something called solo scriptura. I, right. I thought that that would function as a, a gate, a wall, a barrier. You'd have to make meaningful, positive argumentation to promote right. stuff like that. I was naive. I've admitted that many, many times now. Um, but obviously, uh, this is an area you've been addressing for a long period of time and you do so with um, uh, a kind of insight and, shall we say, vigor um, that a lot of folks are afraid to uh, even try to emulate uh, because of their situations. Because, I mean, there's a lot of people who agree, right. they're just afraid to say they agree. Yeah, they, they agree, um, but they've got mortgages or boards or donors. They've got complications. Lots of complications, right. and especially within denominational structures and uh, seminaries and things like that. Um, So as a result, your articles get shared. And when that happens, um, I thought for a period of time that I might have the most uh, derangement syndrome followers (laughs) until I started seeing what happens to you. Right. And so I have to give you the crown on that. I'm I'm close, but not not not. not we could have we could have a troll contest. <laughs> I didn't want to. I wouldn't even want to see what that would look like. It's sort of something out of Lord of the Rings, but um, especially the orcs. But we won't go into that right now. But anyway, uh, the the point is that when that happens, when you write something that really 
nails a particular development that just, just took place. What happens is you get a certain set of memes back almost reflexively right. from a very vocal group of people. Right. And there's all sorts of things that are included in that. But since we have a brief amount of time, um, the primary thing, the primary focus of that is always going back to the issue of the federal vision. Right. And specifically, R. Scott Clark's uh, criticisms and the repetition of those criticisms ad nauseum over and over again. Recently, Brandon Adams, who is a Reformed Baptist, uh, wrote an article in light of the fact that uh, Toby and others that are associated with uh, Moscow uh, were at ReformCon at Apologia. And the whole issue was Reformed Baptists and their federal vision, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So there were certain things brought up in that article. You wrote a, um, a piece for your blog. I think it was posted yesterday. Uh, Monday, I think. Monday. Mo- well, well, sometime this week. <laughs> who, can, who can keep track of these <laughs> yeah. days? I, I, I can't. But um, where you interacted with some of the things that he said, and you sort of had to. I mean, it was sort of buried in the midst of things, but let me just read uh, one statement. Uh, At best, Wilson is thoroughly confused on the gospel, having been deceived by Shepard's false teaching. At worst, he is a wolf speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves, end quote. There really wasn't any really positive area to put a foot down in that particular conclusion, so it's not like you could just let it go swinging by. So um, how... How do we deal with this issue today in light of the fact that you have specifically spoken of the fracturing of what was once known as the Federal Vision movement into people going a lot of different directions? Right. Um, You have wanted to change terminology while at the same time maintaining certain emphases in regards to um, the importance of holiness and, and, and issues along those lines. Let's start with how you define federal vision today, because that seems to be one of the biggest issues. Right. So one of the difficulties is that the, the term federal vision was simply the name of a conference. That was the title, uh, conference title back in 2002. And federal is simply the, uh, a word that comes from the Latin foidus, which means covenant. So it was a covenant vision conference. And th- at that conference, for at basically about six months after that conference at Auburn Avenue in Louisiana, um, about six months after that, John Robbins of the Trinity Foundation sort of launched uh, uh, an attack on the whole thing. And it, basically, the lines were drawn simply by where everybody was standing when the shooting started. <laughs> All right. Um, so... Uh, what what happened was there were, from the very beginning, disparate elements in right. what came to be called the federal vision. Um, I would regard myself as uh, um, as a conservative Westminsterian uh, advocate within the federal vision. I called that the federal vision amber ale, and then the federal vision oatmeal stout would be people like Jim Jordan. Uh, Peter Lightheart, et cetera. Okay. Um, you, just, you, just, you just lost all the Baptists in the group, but don't worry. About <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah. Um, someone told the story is that uh, Jews are people who don't recognize um, uh, uh, Jesus as the Messiah. 
Protestants are those who don't recognize the Pope as the vicar of Christ on earth, and Baptists are those who don't recognize one another in the liquor store. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I've, I've heard that one, not quite in that form, but uh, but anyway, so, so now even back even back in the day, because um, our debate was in 2004, so that was you know not you know it's sort of in the same obviously the same time period. Um, I differentiated between yourself and others from Auburn Avenue and from the presentations we made. You right. had to to be able to accurately understand what somebody was saying. Right. So these guys, uh, um, I, I would say that a lot of the guys on the uh, federal vision oatmeal stout end of things are are my friends. I've, I've got a good relationship with them, but I re- would regard them as sometimes more Lutheran or, or more Anglican or um, uh, more friendly to um, uh, sacramental efficacy in itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that they hold to the ex opere operato view of the Roman Catholic Church, but I think that there are Protestants who are not as skittish about that kind of thing as I uh, am, as I was, and as I am. So right. I'm I'm an evangelical. In my book from that era, Reformed is Not Enough, I begin the book with three chapters in a row, uh, my Calvinistic bona fides, my Reformed bona fides, and my Evangelical bona fides, to make it clear that I believe in the absolute necessity of the new birth, to make it clear that I believe in justification by faith alone plus nothing. Um, and so I've h- held to those views um, uh, throughout this whole controversy. But I do hold, and the thing that, m- that uh, made me federal vision at all, is I do believe in an object, uh, 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 the objectivity of the visible covenant, the objectivity of um, uh, the visible church and its genuine relationship to God in Christ. And that was the hinge of our debate back in 2004. Right. That's what we were talking about. But I absolutely affirm that if a, if a person is not regenerated by the Holy Spirit in, ter- in his heart, if he's not, doesn't have the heart of stone taken away and the heart of flesh uh, replacing it, uh, done by the Holy Spirit, he's lost. It doesn't matter what kind of Christian he was or calls himself. He's the kind of Christian that is going to hell. He's, he, he, doesn't, he was not a member of what classic Reformed theology would call the invisible church. He's not going to be part of what I would call the eschatological church. He didn't have the root of the matter in him. And the root of the matter is faith. Uh, begins with faith, continues by faith, finishes by faith. And so one of the weird things in this in the the trolls who come out when if if I attack uh, the people who are dis, uh, causing our civilization to disintegrate and many of our evangelical institution institutions are disintegrating right along with it as you pointed out the trolls come out and one of the things they say over and over and over is federal vision he denies justification by faith alone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I don't deny justification by faith alone. I affirm it stoutly from beginning to end. I don't deny the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. I don't deny the imputation of the passive obedience of Christ as a forensic act that God performs at the point of, a, of an individual's true conversion. That's, that happens, and I've maintained that now, maintained it all the way through. There are five uh, points that were listed by Brandon Adams drawn from uh, R. Scott Clark. And my understanding is you 
do not follow any of them, which Correct. leads to tremendous confusion. So, uh, number one, there is no covenant of works before the fall. The covenant of grace was established before the fall and continues after the fall. Right. I affirm the doctrine of the covenant of works, the prelapsarian covenant of works before the fall. The thing that throws some people is I don't like calling it the covenant of works. Right. Because I think the term is misleading. Because anybody who's biblically literate works in the Bible, in the Pauline, uh, in the Pauline vocabulary, works as a bad thing. You know, it's pharisaical attempts at self-justification. I would rather call it the covenant of life or the covenant of creation. Um, and I believe it was a gracious covenant, but I believe that God gave, made a covenant with Adam. It's not the covenant of grace. It's a different covenant than what we are saved by. And the, the terms of the covenant, what Adam had to do was not eat from the tree in, uh, of, of the knowledge of good and evil. So the fulfillment of the covenant was contingent upon Adam's obedience. So you would not embrace the description of monocovenantalism? No, I'm not a monocovenantalist. I don't, I, and that, that is the view that there's just one covenant throughout all human history that spans the fall. I believe there was one covenant before the fall that we broke, that we broke in our father Adam, and that the second Adam is given in order uh, under the terms of a new covenant, uh, the covenant of grace, to restore us. So two covenants— and they had different um, conditions, different different things that uh, in the first one, Adam had to obey God and not eat from the tree. And in the second covenant, uh, Christ had to obey his father and go to the go to the tree. So the first Adam disobeyed at a tree. The second Adam obeyed on a tree. Uh, so I believe it was two different covenants. The, another subtlety that some people miss here is that I believe that if Adam had kept the covenant, the first one, he would have done it by trusting God, by believing God. He, he, he would have done it by faith. And I, I believe if he had withstood his probationary test, he would have thanked God afterwards. And so I think it was a gracious covenant because I think God is gracious. And I believe that Adam would have fulfilled it by trusting God and believing God and walking with God that way. So Adam would have been... Um, a believing Adam, just as Christ was a believing Christ. But they would have been doing two different things with two different covenants. Second point, and this is this is going to sort of circle around to what we were talking about just a few moments ago, and this is really important. The conditions of the covenant with Adam are the conditions for Christians' faithfulness. Now, there's a obviously a distinction being made between faith and faithfulness. Right. Right. Um, and and so is is that definitional of the federal vision and what's your view on it? Uh, so my my view is that God gives uh, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are you saved through faith and that, that referring to the faith, and that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. So um, the faith, when I first trust in God, uh, that faith is the instrument of my justification. The ground of the ground of justification is the obedience of Jesus Christ throughout his, the course of his life and his culminating obedience on the cross. That's the ground of justification. When God gives me faith to trust in Christ at the moment of my justification, I trust in God, trust in the gospel, trust in Christ with that God-given faith. That God-given God-given faith is living faith. 
Okay, And at that moment, it's a punctiliar moment where I'm justified. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to me, and in my justification, I am perfect. God looks at me and sees Jesus Christ and nothing else. So my justification, uh, my status, is that of uh, the perfection of Jesus Christ. That's what I have. Now, But that faith that believed, that was the instrument to believing to justification— that faith doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. So I believe in justification by faith alone, but I also believe that that faith remains and trusts God in the realm of sanctification. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't get justified because of how well I'm doing in my sanctification, but, but the instrument that, let's say five years after conversion, I have a really bad week and I sin a lot in that week. And on the Friday of that really bad week, I get hit by a truck, and I, but I'm, and I go to heaven. I go to heaven because I'm perfect in Christ. I go to heaven because I'm justified, because I was declared not guilty uh, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But I was having a bad week because I wasn't walking by faith with regard to my sanctification the way I should have been, which is why Paul chides the Galatians. Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now going to finish by human effort? Are you not going to f- finish in the flesh? No. And, and in Romans 1, Paul says that uh, he quote, he's quoting Habakkuk 2, uh, the just shall live by faith or the just shall live by his faith. But it, notice the just, it doesn't say the just shall start by faith and finish by works. It says the just shall live by faith. So I'm converted on Tuesday. I'm justified by faith alone on Tuesday. On Wednesday, Everything I do ought to be by faith also, right? On Thursday, sanctification is by faith, and it's the same faith, and it's a living faith because God doesn't give any other kind. Okay, so let me, let me flesh this out. Are you, in, in your mind, in, 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 is it your intention at this point to be saying what the catechism says, and that's basically that a saving faith is never alone? Correct. We are justified by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. Correct. So it's, it's, if it's, it's the work of God in his elect people, he gives faith and the purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ. Therefore, that faith is going to be a living faith. And we are going to be, as new creatures, desirous right. of holiness, standard, standard stuff that has this, been being taught for a long, long time. That, so, that is correct. What I'm affirming here is classic Reformed Theology 101, the kind you buy at Walmart. Okay. So when you're going to Walmart, though, you run into a Roman Catholic. Right. <laughs> so, right. So, and, and this was, this was, I, I'm sure you remember is one of my key issues uh, from, from our debate. And it, it's what drew me to the federal vision uh, controversy. It was as, as it was going on is because I'm doing debates with the best Roman Catholic apologists and the Roman Catholic apologists saying, of course, we believe in salvation by grace alone through faith mm-hmm. without that last word. And they then emphasize the fact that, well, you know, it, it's faith working through love, and they use that to open a door to drive the entire bus of the Roman sacramental system into the meaning of what faith is. Faith includes uh, the, the penances, and faith includes the confessions of the priests, and faith includes the indulgences. And, right. and, and so they, they crank the door open to get all that stuff through there. And right. that's when I'm hearing a lot of your critics saying is, I know what Dougie's up to. He's such a wordsmith. He's, he's sneaking it in here. It's and Trixie. So, it's Trixie, Trixie <laughs> Dugsy. So, yeah. so 
So how? So here's how I answer. This is this is. I'm glad you asked that. So this is the this is the um, the issue. The debate at the beginning of the Reformation and down to the present, the debate between Protestants and Catholics, it uh, was about imputed righteousness and infused righteousness. Right. Right. Imputed righteousness and infused righteousness. But the debate between Protestants and Catholics was not over the existence of imputed righteousness or the existence of infused righteousness. Both sides affirmed it. The Roman Catholics said that infused righteousness was part of your justification. Okay, it was included in it. I'm saying, together with all my Protestant fathers and all my Protestant brothers, I'm saying that justification is an imputation function alone, right? So uh, we, we believe in Christ, by God-given faith, God enables us to believe, and uh, he imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to me, his act, his, the righteousness of his whole life and his righteous sacrifice on the cross. That is imputed to me, and that is my justification with no remainder, no, no pieces uh, sticking out anywhere. There's nothing of—see, the problem is my justification in order to function has to be perfect. I can't. I don't. Can't be content with a decree of not guilty mostly. <laughs> I, I I need a not guilty. I need a declaration of righteousness. And if my justification is based in any way upon infused righteousness, i.e., my sanctification, in this life it's always imperfect. Right. So if infused righteousness is part of my justification, that means my justification is imperfect, which means I'm sunk. I'm lost. So my justification that establishes my status as a child of God has to be perfect. But the next morning when I wake up, I've got to obey God or not. I've got to read my Bible or not. I've got to believe what it says or not. I've got to conform my life to his word. But that's all sanctification. So the Protestants said, yes, the Holy Spirit infuses righteousness. That's the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, works love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. He infuses all sorts of things into me, but that's not that cannot be my plea when I, I ask God to accept me. Because however much love, joy, peace I've got, I could always have more and I could have always done better. In the, in the final analysis uh, in, in the last day, um, is there any element to where your faithfulness, which was the result of the work of the Spirit and everything else, but your faithfulness adds to, in any way, your standing before God? No. I would say it proves my standing before God. It's fruit. In a a judicial sense that that God was right in doing these things, but it it, does not change. Correct. um, uh, At the last day, my works of faithfulness, uh, this goes back to your point of the classics reform formulation, were justified by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. Uh, Mm -hmm. So my life that follows after is... Um, evidence, it's uh, the fingerprints of God all over my life that points to what God did, the genuineness of what God did at that moment of my conversion. Okay, the third, um, this one is, this gets off into the weeds a little bit, but because there is no distinction between those who are in the covenant only externally, those who are also in the covenant internally, at baptism, every baptized person is endowed with all that we need to persevere and retain what we have been given. Right. This would be an area where I think that some of the federal vision 
oatmeal stout guys sometimes talk in a way that would justify nervousness on this point or yes. at, the, at, the, at the very least, uh, can I ask some follow-up questions? But I wrote an entire book against the church addressing exactly this issue on the absolute necessity of regeneration, heart regeneration. So the kingdom of God is not like a line of Labrador retrievers, where as long as your papers are in order, uh, thoroughbred lab- Labradors, as long as your papers are in order, you're good. Right. Well, my, my daddy was a preacher. My granddaddy was a preacher. Uh, I was baptized by an authorized minister. Here, I'm, here, here are my uh, papers. Right. Uh, you've got to be converted to God. You've got to be, you must be born again. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, you're a teacher in Israel, and don't you know about the new birth? Don't you know about these things? So the new birth is an internal reality. And I believe that a Christian, baptized Christian, papers in order, who's born again, has something qualitatively different than someone who's an Orthodox Christian, signed the con- uh, externally, uh, signed all the papers, but isn't converted to God, isn't regenerated. And the person who isn't regenerated is lost, and the person who is regenerated is saved. So I uh, hotly deny any accusation that I make, that I make no distinction between an internal and an external Christian. I, I make that distinction in Reformed is Not Enough, and I make that distinction in an entire book dedicated to it against the church. Well, and you made that distinction in the debate with phraseology that, of course, for most people on my side, they're sitting back going, why even say this? But it was the same distinction. You talked about Roman Catholics who are Christians, but unregenerate. Right, right. And so, and see, they hear the term Christian and automatically include regeneration in there. That's where the dissonance comes that, that, in the thinking of some someone that, who doesn't have your background. That's that's why this is so troublesome and why this recent article by Brandon uh, Adams uh, created this confusion. And what it boils down to is you're a Baptist and I'm a Presbyterian. Yep. All right. And so as Presbyterians, we I'll just... Uh, state it in a stark way here. As Presbyterians, we baptize babies, and that creates... <laughs> you, heard it, you heard it here. We baptize babies, and what that does is that creates this theological problem. Uh, now, Baptists would say, it, yeah, it creates a host of pastoral problems and other problems too, but at the very least, we can agree that it creates a theological challenge. Okay, right. if, you're, if you're an evangelical, and you say you must be converted to God in order to go to heaven. That's the real Christian. And you just baptized a baby who can't talk, you know, isn't participating in the worship service, shows no signs of faith. Uh, you know, what, what, are you do, what the heck are you doing here? That, uh, that creates the tension. You, uh, this, I've got this person who's baptized who's thus in some sense part of the church right, in our framework. In some sense, he's part of the church. In some sense, he's a member of the church now. But we are, are also maintaining he's got to be converted to God at some point in his life or he's lost forever. Right? No, no, that means I've got two kinds of Christians at a, at a bare minimum. Now, I would point out that Baptist churches also have two kinds of Christians, right? They, they try to guard against it by, in the South, in the Bible Belt, Everybody's a Christian until they get their driver's license, right? And then, 
then they then they go off and sow their wild oats, and then they rededicate their lives a little bit later. But every church in this fallen world has false professors. They have people who went through the drill. Somebody comes to your church because it's a good place to sell insurance, or that's this is where the pretty girls are, um, and they get baptized. And you've got he's some kind of Christian because he's baptized, but he doesn't have the root of the matter in him. The difference between Let's assume a, a healthy, spiritually healthy Baptist church and a spiritually healthy uh, Presbyterian church. They care about the um, the quality of regenerate life that is within the body. They both care about it. The difference between them is like the difference between two different kinds of nightclubs. Um, uh, uh, if you want, if the Baptists wanted a classy nightclub, they hire security guards to check everybody's ID at the door. And they want to make sure you're an okay guy before we let you in. Uh, a Presbyterian nightclub would hire big bouncers. So from inside. From inside. So we let people in. We let. We don't check everybody at the door, but we have a lot of bouncers and good security team. And when someone starts acting up, we es- we escort them out. So those. That's a difference. And it, and there's a a real theological debate to be had there. But what you can't say. But what you can't say is that if a, can a, if, if the question in Baptist world is, can a Presbyterian be an evangelical? The historic answer is absolutely yes. Right. The, you know, the, we've got centuries of evangelical Presbyterians. And you Baptists might marvel at the workarounds we must be doing in our heads in order to get to this place. But I'm right where... I'm right where Hodge was. I'm right where Calvin was. I'm right where the Synod of Dort was. I'm I'm right where Dabney and Thorne. You know, I'm I'm right there. I'm an evangelical, and I'm a Presbyterian. And so, consequently, when I say, yeah, he's objectively a Christian, he's not a Buddhist. You know, he's not a Hindu. Yeah, he's baptized. I'm saying yes, he's not nominally a Christian, a member of the visible church. His name is in the church directory. Now let's talk about whether he's saved. But, but that's where you get the, the language of grab him by his baptism. Correct. Right. right. Correct. Um, and so that that in some way assumes that there's something in that act that is grabbable. Yes. And, and part of our argument was, you know, my position was, if there's no gospel there, there's nothing grabbable there. Right. Correct. And you were saying, well, it, we go a different direction on that. But the point is, and this is... I, I, and I, I'm, I'm very appreciative of the conversation, and this is the, the important aspect from my perspective, and that is this issue of faithfulness and what baptism does. Right. You said that there are some who've been associated with that phrase, federal vision, where you start wondering, that sounds really Anglican, that sounds really Lutheran, and that sounds, that sounds like there is a, if not ex operato, it's, it's getting close to it. kind of mysticism in regards to the nature of baptism. But you're saying that doesn't fit with a robust understanding of God's sovereignty in election and regeneration and all the rest of that. Correct. That that is correct. So uh, I I do think there's a a debate, a reasonable debate for Baptists and Presbyterians to have on the theological status of covenant members. And I do think there's a worthy debate to be had between my objectivity of the covenant view and some of my friends in the in the dark ale, the oatmeal stout uh, wing of the federal, what used to be called federal vision, but there is no federal vision movement anymore. Really, it's not it's not a thing. Okay, 
Uh, so in light of that, I'm not sure we should look at the last two points, but we will anyways, just for, for just, for, just for entertainment, entertainment <laughs> purposes, those who cooperate sufficiently with grace will finally persevere and shall, and shall have been elected. I, I, the, the grammar there is rather significant. Yes, it is. And this is, uh, this is Brandon Adams summary of what he says, Scott Clark is saying about us. Mm-hmm. So it's the, he says, this is Scott Clark's definition of federal vision. Um, so this is, we're talking about it third hand here, but I, I think right. that um, on this one, not only is Scott Clark wronging me, he's, I think he's even wronging the oatmeal uh, stout guys because mm-hmm. uh, the oatmeal stout guys are, I, I would say, this is my summary of my worries about that wing of the fe- of formal federal vision movement. Uh, those guys are all Augustinian. They're, they're high predestinarians. Uh, they are not uh, they're not Arminians. They're not um, loosey-goosey about God's sovereignty at all. Um, I would call them Augustinian, and I would say that I'm a Calvinist, right? So one of the differences, be, um, Augustine, if you, if you uh, I think it was Warfield who said the Reformation was a collision between Augustine's view of the church and Augustine's view of soteriology. You know, Specifically, the quotation was, the Reformation inwardly considered was nothing more than the victory of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. Correct. And, and I accept Warfield's assessment there. And I think the, the Federal Vision guys are, uh, uh, like I said, high predestinarian. And so there's even in those circles, there's none of this shall have been elected stuff. So if uh, I could talk to anybody in that whole former movement, and they say no, they would agree. The decretally elect were established before the foundation of the world. The number cannot be increased or diminished. It's, it's a, so everybody uh, would be united in rejecting that shall have been elected stuff, okay. right? Um, okay. uh, there would be something to talk about on what the sacraments do and, and, and how much they were given. So Augustine, for example, believed that regeneration was reversible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Augustine would say you can't lose your election, but you could lose your regeneration. All yeah, right. didn't, it wasn't the idea that you could actually be regenerated, but not actually elect. Hence, we're given the gift of perseverance. Right. Correct. Right. And so, I, I think that that's weird juju. And uh, you know, Augustine, uh, Augustine was far my superior, far my better. I appreciate him very much. I love him. But I think that there were some things that I go, man, I can't get, I can't get my head around that. Right. But if you look at the history of the church, that would mean that I'm a post-Reformation Calvinist evangelical, where right. we've, worked, we've worked this out in a different way than Augustine worked it out. And uh, some of my friends in the old uh, Federal Vision camp are more Augustinian than they are Calvinist. And, and right. so I'd say this, this fourth point misrepresents both me and them. Okay. And finally, it is possible for those who are truly united to Christ to fall away, that is to experience full apostasy. Okay, so um, here's, this, is the, this is an area where that statement uh, misrepresent, misrepresents me because of that word truly, truly united to Christ. Mm-hmm. It, um, so here's the issue. I believe that it's possible to fall away from some sort of connection to Christ. But it's always non-salvific. So I believe, I believe that the visible church, the ones, the kind of church that we all go to, 
the kind of church that you tithe to and the kind of church you sing in on Sundays, that that church is a mixed multitude. It's it's not made up of the elect. You, nobody has ever been certain that they've ele- worshipped with only the elect and nothing, no one but the elect on any given Sunday. So I believe that that church really is connected to Christ. That, and that means that I believe that there are false professors in the church who are baptized, who are members of the church, who are preachers perhaps, or elders or deacons, who are not regenerate and are not saved. Because they are unregenerate and unsaved, they don't have as Jesus put it, the root of the matter in them. They, they, they don't have um, the new birth, which is absolutely essential to uh, salvation. They don't have that. But they do have something, okay? So they, they do have some sort of connection to Christ. And that's, what I, that's how I understand John 15 and Romans 11. You can have branches... Um, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the, you're the branches. And he says, fruitless branches are cut off and taken, taken away and burned. Um, I think that that's talking about the kind of apostasy, not of the elect, not of the regenerate, but of dry branches that are cut out of the vine. Same thing in Romans 11 with the olive tree. So I don't think when the non-elect covenant member, when the visible member of the church is removed. I don't think it's a matter of removing a frisbee that got caught in the branches, an alien object that got caught in the branches. There's some kind of connection to Christ, but it's not the true connection to Christ. It's not the saving connection to Christ. It's not the root of the matter connection to Christ. But there, um, basically, I'm saying that the visible church is something that God takes seriously, but the visible church is not something that God takes salvifically. Membership in the visible church is something that God does not take salvifically. In order for salvation to occur, you've got to have the internal heart work done by the Spirit. But if you go join the church and you make the profession of faith, and the church decides five years later that you're a scoundrel and they excommunicate you, I think that you really are being removed from something. And that something that you're removed from is the body of Christ. But we have to make a distinction between salvific connection to Christ and visible church connection to Christ. It's uh, not an easy area. Uh, anybody who thinks that it is easy probably has never pastored a church for any period of time at all, uh, right. is, is my understanding of that. Now, uh, I never met the gentleman, never knew the gentleman, but um, evidently you have a shrine to Norman Shepherd in your house. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure how you keep the, the, the candles going and things like that. But could you, could you uh, address what relationship uh, you bear or don't bear to the theology and, and program of, of Norman Shepherd? Yeah, um, the, this is my best way. There's a big section in Brandon uh, Adams' uh, article on this. Um, I've met Norman Shepard once. We chatted amicably at a conference, and I'm not sure what year, for just a few minutes. Um, I read Gary North. Basically, uh, in the Reconstruction world, back in the 80s, I read a boatload of the Reconstructionist stuff, Rush Dooney and North and all of those guys. Um, And in Reconstruction circles, uh, Norman Shepard was a good guy, you know, a good guy. 
Gary North wrote a whole book called Westminster's Confession on the shepherd controversy at Westminster East that had just uh, had occurred shortly before that. And that controversy expand, extended over years. So I read um, North's book in 1991, and I didn't know all the all the particulars, but I read it, and uh, North was on, squarely on Shepard's side and saying that Westminster really messed up royally by letting him go. And then 10 years later, I read Norman Shepard's small book, Call of Grace, um, uh, published by Presbyterian and Reformed in 2001. It's a little book, and I read it. And that's the extent of my um uh, connection to Norman Shepard. So uh, Brandon talks about me following uh, Shepard or being a disciple of Shepard, but I really am not. So for example, Norman Shepard uh, um, affirms the imputation of the passive obedience of Christ, um, and he denies the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. And that's a big deal in his system. And uh, I affirm both. So I, I, I part company with Shepard on that essential part of his project. Um, and, but but he, the areas where we sound like we're saying the same things, I think it's because we were addressing the same sorts of problems. That, um, but addressing the same questions doesn't mean that you're coming up with the same answers. And I, came, I, I come up with some very different answers to some of these same questions that—, that um, that Shepherd did, and I'm not. I'm not a disciple, not a follower. Um, basically, that's uh, something that is read into, uh, read into this whole thing. So, I've got not. I've got no beef. I've, I'm not angry with Norman Shepherd. It's just not part of my uh, history. Right, uh, and yet the the reason for the association is obviously to say, well, Shepard was condemned by this person, this person, that group, that group, this seminary, whatever. Uh, and therefore, uh, I, I've been using the term a lot recently, associationalism. I'm, I'm primarily referring to fundamentalists there who use the argumentation. Well, um, you know, you, you, have to, you have to separate yourself away from anybody who doesn't look like us, act like us, sound like us. And while we see it boldly done by fundamentalists um, on on almost every issue, that that kind of mindset is is widespread, even amongst what would be called the reform community. Yep. There, there is a, a grave concern to be on the right side of everything. Right. And unfortunately, um, and I, I wish Baptists were were reform Baptists were not suspect to this, but uh, or liable to this, but but we are. Um, especially in Presbyterian circles where you automatically have an extra layer of interaction and ecclesiastical authority with the Presbyterians and so on and so forth. Right. You end up with a lot of political uh, posturing and uh, dividing lines between people and you need to be on this side or that side. And the idea of allowing for a person to fundamentally define their own position frequently gets sacrificed on the altar of I'm being the pure and holy one and staying away from anybody that could possibly sully me. Right. And so you throw Norman Shepard's name out there. That's a little bit more dirt to throw on somebody right. to hopefully convince somebody else to not listen uh, and to, and to not uh, benefit in any way from what that person is, is saying. 
Right. It just seems to me that as I as I have experienced what what I see going on aimed toward you with regularity, I can I can make reference to one of your articles on the dividing line, and for two weeks we've got people calling. Don't uh, you about, didn't you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, exactly. And it's not just about federal vision, oh, as I... if we didn't know that. And in fact, have you debated anyone? in writing or in person more often than me uh, because you and I, you and yeah. I did credenda agenda back in the nineties, I think on right. the textual issue, we did the book, which was way too short. And yeah. did they eventually send you a copy? They never sent, even sent me a copy of that book. Somebody else had to send that to me. I think, think I ordered, I think I ordered it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, so we did, we did the, um, the textual issue book. We did the Roman Catholic, uh, our Today. Roman Catholics, our brothers, um, in 2004 and we right. did the thing in credenda so no i think right. we've you're up at the top you, yeah, yeah so so a, a lot of people do not understand how you can debate someone and yet consider them a brother right right and the other thing is the people don't take into account is uh, obviously if i got an invitation to um, speak at a conference dominated by wackos and weirdos I wouldn't right. want to go. To, uh, I wouldn't want to go. But if I were asked to speak at a conference and uh, uh, like I, I spoke for the Illinois Family Research Council and the other fellow speaking there with, with me is Tony Eslin, a uh, Roman Catholic guy who's done some marvelous work on marriage. And it just he's I really like uh, a bunch of what he says. Um, so I, if, as long as restrictions are not placed on what I'm going to say. Right. I'm willing to appear on the same platform together with all kinds of people that I have robust disagreements with in other areas, depending on what um, the banner over us says. So right. if, if the banner over us says evangelicals for cultural reform, I don't want to speak with a Catholic right. because I don't want to degrade the language. But if it's a citizen's pro-life rally... Right. Americans for for the sanctity of life. I'm more than happy to march with uh, Catholics and fellow citizens who want us to stop killing babies. If right. someone if someone says um, truly regenerate Christians for life, um, <laughs> and someone I, I've not seen that one. But and someone invites the Mormons. I'm right. not I'm you, you lost me because you're not going to advance the truth by telling lies. You, right. you don't want to degrade the language. So right. so basically the association game, you're exactly right about that. Um, you, you can't judge someone based on the kind of books they have read and profited from uh, in, in part and reject other, you know. Uh, but, but that's exactly what happens. And you and I both know it. Right. I mean, uh, the, the fundamentalist attitude is you can't read outside your camp. You can't learn from outside your camp. It all has to be the echo chamber or you're somehow sullied and you're somehow have been stained. Right. Uh, if, and and I, I don't know how you can ever present a full orbed understanding of the faith that interacts with the culture around us. If you don't know what's being said out there, if you don't know what the other perspectives right. are. If I just intrude something here, um, I've got a, uh, despite all the things that they've thrown at my head, um, I've got a warm spot somewhere in my heart for the fundamentalists because 
we're living in a time where privilege is not the right word, but we're living in a time where we're watching an entire civilization disintegrate. The whole thing is coming apart. We don't know what a boy is. We don't know what a girl is. We don't know what marriage is. We don't know what up or down. We don't know any of this. And a lot of our stalwart, established, reformed evangelical institutions are being swept away or badly eroded by this movement. And so consequently, uh, if I were a fundamentalist, I would be pointing at this saying, see, see, <laughs> you know, we, we, we told you, you know, we told you. Um, the problem, so the part of the problem with the woke brethren, the, the people who are evangelical and gospel-centric and da-da-da-da, and they say, well, Christ relates to everything, um, and they're doing this to introduce liberalism and progressivism and evolutionary thinking, postmodernism. When they say, well, Christ applies to everything and we have to engage with culture, uh, I, I would point to them and say, the problem is that you are doing your level best to give the fundamentalists all the confirmation bias they could ever want. Um, and when fundamentalists look at someone like you or me, they, they see someone who is just gearing up. We're, we're just, uh, we, we're, we're stage one cancer, um, as opposed to the stage four cancer that we see happening in the Southern Baptist Convention or the PCA, the revoice, the revoice foolishness. And the fundamentalists are confirmed in their, they jump to conclusions, but for people who are blindfolded and swing with the bat wildly, they're getting way more hits than I, I want them to. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And unfortunately, though, they tend to hit the friends as well as the enemies when mm-hmm. you've got the blindfold on. That's, that's the issue. Right. Your, that's time, the your, your time is running out and uh, you, you're, you've got a lot to do there. Let me, just, let me just wrap things up. Given what I have called the Doug Wilson derangement syndrome uh, that, that exists in the, uh, in the Internet, um, how, how do you maintain uh, a, a positive attitude of, of seeking cooperation with other believers? How do you keep from just getting so snake bit right. that you just want to stay away and stay out in the, in the woods uh, someplace and, and just, just say, fine, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm going to sit out here and I'm, I'm not even going to have interaction with people anymore. Right. How, do you, how do you keep that attitude? Um, that's a wonderful question. I would answer with an illustration and then uh, uh, cite what Jesus said to do. Um, if, if, you, if your airplane is surrounded by exploding anti-aircraft fire, if there's flak everywhere you look, what that means is that you're over the target. You know, you're, you're getting close to where you ought to be. If you're in a war, if you're in a conflict, and everybody reacts, everybody just goes nuts over what you just said. That, what, the way I take that, the kind of feedback I take from that is, oh, I must, I must be getting warm. You know, I must, so if I write something and, and it's just crickets, nobody cares, I, I conclude, well, I'm not addressing the issues I ought to be addressing. When I say something and all of us, and all the trolls come out and all the critics come out and everybody says, "How dare, how dare you, sir? How dare you?" Um, I think, okay, this is. I need to double down here. I need to. This is the. This is the target. This is where I need to be. And then what the Lord said, um, uh, and I think this is really important for people who are engaged in public life at all. 
Jesus said, when people uh, despitefully use you, when they say all manner of wicked things about you, when they start throwing all the dead cats they can find at you, uh, Jesus said, in that day, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, right? Uh, so we have we have direct marching orders so that if I am vilified, if I am hated, if uh, if I'm in this situation, I'm what I'm supposed to do. Jesus says directly, I'm supposed to go around the corner, get out of sight and dance a little jig. Just do a little thank. Thank you, Lord. Um, thank you. Because Jesus says, if you're vilified that way, then you're getting no different treatment than the prophets got that. This is. This is how God tells his story uh, in the world. I, funny, uh, we just um, recently brought someone into membership who moved to Moscow. Uh, they, nothing to do with us. You know, they, did, they didn't know about us, didn't know anything about us, but found our church after they got here. And when they were calling around deciding where to live, they called a, a place of employment looking for a job. And the person asked them, um, are you, you're not one of those Doug Wilson people, are you? And, and they said, who? You know, they didn't know anything. Um, and they said, who's that? And he said, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so basically, when I hear that, it's, and if I hear that and I I'm turn into a sob sister or I get my feelings hurt or I get offended, not only am I going along with one of the problems in our culture, which is everybody's grieve, aggrieved about everything, Everybody's offended by everything. Not only am I going along with that, but here I am standing for the Bible, refusing to do what Jesus expressly said to do when people call you all sorts of names. You want to make sure that what they're saying is false. You, right. you, you want to, if, the, if they're saying you lied or you stole right. or you did, you want, you want that to know in your heart before God the accusations are false. But if they're false— Many Christians, that's, that's the real hard thing, is hearing a false accusation. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus said expressly that that was a cause for joy. False, so so when, people, um, when people say, I don't believe in justification by faith when I do, Jesus says, rejoice. When people say that I love pedophiles and I don't, uh, you know, I don't love uh, or, or enable uh, that sort of thing, uh, and they say that I do, then I'm commanded to rejoice. If people say that I am um, vindictive and mean-spirited and I know that that's not my heart at all, I'm commanded to rejoice. That's just basic uh, follow the Lord. The, the hard thing, though, is uh, it's one thing when you take the flack over the target. It's the other thing when you're trying to land on your home field and they're still <laughs> shooting at you. Right. So in other yeah. words, for me, when unbelievers act like unbelievers, yeah, no problem. Right. But it's when people make a credible, credible profession of faith, yeah. and they're the ones behind the AA gun. Right. That's that's a different. That, that's a that's a that's a that's a separate challenge. It is a separate challenge. Yes, it is. It is. It is. Well, Doug, thank you very much for your time. I know that you need to get going, and I hope that this discussion will be of some assistance to some people. I am not naive enough to think that. Um, no matter what the level of clarity that there will, that everyone's just going to go, Oh, well, okay, great. Let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Well, but, uh, hopefully at least for some people, there will be some clarity. provided. Thanks for doing this. And, uh, over the years, I have greatly appreciated your ability to engage and disagree, debate me amicably. And, um, thank you and God bless you. Thank you very much. God bless. Mm-hmm.